Let me read to you now from Ephesians chapter 6. I want to read to you the first four verses. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Father, I do ask that as we open your word together, you will speak and challenge and change the way we think and feel so that we can bring you pleasure with our lives. Amen. Because of the the theme that we're addressing today, there certainly was a temptation as I began to prepare to want to move through this fairly rapidly. Partly because uh, in in our gatherings when I'm preaching, there are very few children in the room. Most of them are out there and they're not listening to me right now. So uh, even my own children. And, uh, and, And most of you as well are not parents. And so you're not at that stage in which you feel the urgency, okay, I need some teaching on this. And many of you perhaps don't imagine that that will be part of your future either. So the question of the relevance of this section was raised immediately as I began to wrestle with it in preparation. But I have a deep conviction and have held this belief for as long as I can remember that the family is an institution that must be taught into for Christian discipleship and also has to be fought for. I think you'd have to be blind not to see that it is one of the areas where Christian worldview and teaching collides most violently with the culture in which we're now living. That's not true globally, but it is true where we are at the particular point in history in which we're living. And so the question of when and how you tackle this has to be answered with a resounding that the time is now. Regardless of where you're at in your life stage, whether you're young and not considering or maybe on the lookout or already married or maybe you've been married or maybe there's been um, some negative experiences in that, wherever you're at in your life stage, the time for us as Christians to grapple with this and wrestle with this and think about this is now. And so I want to spend a couple of weeks in this passage and really begin to wrestle with some of what Paul is saying here and the implications of it more broadly. And we have to begin with the question of why the family is so important for our faith and for the plan of God in the world. Why is the family so important in Christian teaching and worldview? And let me just, before I answer that question, I want to step back and and acknowledge the reasons why we intuitively resist thinking about this and talking about this. And I think there are two main reasons we resist it. One is because we are very aware, especially because of our location here as a church that's primarily made up of young adults who are not necessarily married, we're very aware of the increasing reality of singleness um, in the world generally, but especially also for us as in, in churches. And we're also aware of the grief that some people carry who are married but have been unable to conceive or to bear children. And I think in our, in our day and age where we're, we're, we're more, 
we're more acutely conscious of the hurts that people carry with them, the, the grievances or the, the unmet desires that people carry. There's a reticence to want to tread on sensitive subjects. And I want to acknowledge that up front. I feel that. I think we, we generally as a church have probably underemphasized teaching in these areas in comparison to other churches just because I look out and think, well, most of us probably don't want to have too, too much teaching on this too often. So there's that aspect. Another aspect is that theologically, we know that with the coming of the gospel and the breaking out of the gospel into the world, there has been a renewed emphasis, you see this in the New Testament, on the vital importance of the individual and the individual's response to God. That whereas in the Old Testament so much of faith was transmitted through family and through the generations as a nation, one of the hallmarks of the gospel was that God was speaking to individuals, calling individuals from different tribes, nations, languages, and tongues. And part of that has led to an overcorrection that I think we're seeing in the Western world where we think about spirituality in individualistic terms, divorced from family, divorced from community, divorced even from church. And so there's, there's a kind of a confusion that has set in, particularly in the West, in which we think about our faith through the lens of my personal relationship with God. And this is why, I, you know, we're anxious not to, to, to emphasize too much of the community elements and particularly the biological family, I think. But I think we have to return to Scripture. If you're asking the question, why is the family so important in the Bible, I want to give you two reasons. I think we could probably list more, but I want to give you two reasons at the start. The first is that the family has always been the primary setting in which the kingdom of God has expanded and grown. By having children, by raising them in the faith, the faith is transmitted through the generations. Now, in saying that, I do not want to diminish or downplay the importance of evangelism to those who are from non-believing homes, or, and, and this is the reality of pioneering missions context, like you've been taking some time working through the book of Acts. Most of the conversions you're seeing happen in the book of Acts are not children being raised in Christian homes, they are, it's the gospel smashing through into new cultures and places, and people coming to, to faith in Jesus. And that is continuing today. Many of you have experienced the grace of God breaking into your life, even though you came from homes that were not Christian. But, but, the Bible is clear that there is a special grace that flows generationally through families. I think, you, I, think I could turn to so many scriptures to elucidate this, but right from the beginning, Genesis 1, this is such a critical passage on this theme. When God says of Adam and Eve, he said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing and so on. In other words, he says, the way that my kingdom order and rule is going to expand on planet earth will be by you having children. And those children carrying the authority that I have given you as my people. The kingdom of God expands as God's people raise children, the next generation. I think you can see the same thing going on in Deuteronomy chapter 6, what is an absolutely critical and crucial passage as you meditate on your responsibilities when you're a parent or becoming a parent, where it says in Deuteronomy 6, 
The Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your children. And shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. The image that's being painted there is of parents who are so completely saturated in the love of God, loving him and loving him with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, that he is on their mind and in their heart all the time. And children are being raised in the atmosphere and in the fragrance of a home that is full of God's Holy Spirit and of the Word of God. That's the image that we're seeing there in Deuteronomy 6. Psalm 127 is another place I'd want to turn to just substantiate this idea of the biological family as the vehicle for God's kingdom growing. It's that passage where it says, unless the Lord builds the house, so it can be translated household, those who build it labor in vain. And then it goes on and says, behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward, like arrows in the hands of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. I love that passage because the image is that as you have children, you are raising them to be like weapons in God's hand. Weapons for the progress and advance of God's kingdom and rule and reign in this world. And it validates large families as well. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. Who's to say how many that is? I don't know. I think every man knows when his quiver is full. But it, is, it validates this idea that having children is about the expansion of the kingdom of God. And just in case you imagine that this is all just an Old Testament idea, you've just been studying the book of Acts. What, does, what happens on the day of Pentecost when Peter preaches to the crowds who witness the Holy Spirit coming on the church and they, they're, they're baffled and they're confused and they're perplexed and they're intrigued. He preaches to them about the risen Lord Jesus Christ and about the coming of the Holy Spirit to change and transform and renew our lives. And then he ends it in this way. Speaking about the gift of the Holy Spirit, he says the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. So there's no, there's no competition here. The gift of the Spirit who, re, who revives and transforms and saves us is for us. It's for our children because we're raising them in the context of a godly home. And it's also for those pioneering missions contexts to reach into new, the lives of new individuals and families. It all comes together. God expands his kingdom through the gospel and that the primary way is through having and raising children in the faith. Now think about yourself for a second. All of you, there's an unbroken chain, a transmission of faith that goes from you all the way back to Adam. And most of the links in that chain, even if you came to faith as a first-generation Christian, your parents didn't believe, still most of the links in that chain of the transmission of faith from generation to generation were parents raising their children in the faith. The vast majority... This is the order of things. This is the way God works. Another reason I would add to that 
is that then the family is called to be the visible display of the kingdom of God in the world. Now, again, I don't want to play, downplay the importance of the church. The church is the pillar and buttress of the truth. The church is the household of faith. The church is the temple of God's Holy Spirit. The church is the bride of Christ. The church is a family. But most of the way in which we work out our discipleship in day-to-day life so that we are seen to a watching world will be in the context of your family. And one of the most obvious ways in which Christians live countercultural and distinctive lives is the way that God's order comes into the household. This is why I think at the end of the book of Ephesians, as Paul's laid down teaching and doctrine and ideas around the gospel and the church, he ends and rounds off this whole letter by teaching into the household. He talks about marriage, then he talks about raising children, and then he talks about the reality, which was true in the ancient world, of having masters and servants or slaves within the household, and brings God's teaching to bear on all of those things. Because he wanted households that reflect God's peace, God's shalom, God's Holy Spirit presence and power and vitality within the household. Most of the exposure many non-Christians will have to see something of the work of God will be when they look at our marriages, when they look at our children, when they look at our homes. Now I say all this because I want you to feel the urgency and importance of this subject. And as we begin to open it up today and then again, God willing, next week, I want to ask this question, how is the family restored and revived. I want to give you three answers today. And I want to start by answering the question in this way. That the family is restored and revived when we begin with God-honoring marriage built upon Christ as the foundation of the home of the household. I don't want to dwell here too long because You can go back, listen to the teaching I gave on marriage in the passage that preceded this one, and it's there for you to listen to online, and we talked at length about husbands and wives. I want to just address some brief comments to the men and then to the women, because I don't think that you can talk about raising children unless you just, I want to dovetail this with what Paul's already said. He put marriage first. A few comments to the brothers here first. How you love and cherish a woman will be one of the greatest opportunities for Christ-likeness in your life on this earth. It's one of the ways that you can most visibly walk in and assume discipleship to your master Jesus in the way, this is what Paul said, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So men assume that calling and mantle to be like Jesus in that specific way, that he loved his bride and died on the cross for her. My calling as a man, if I'm not called to singleness, is to find and choose a woman and love her in a way that mirrors the love of Jesus for his bride. And so Christ-likeness is formed in me and displayed to the world in the way that I love my wife. And for you to do this, it means resisting certain cultural tendencies and trends and embracing Scripture in certain ways. And here's a few things I think you have to resist, brothers. 
I think you have to resist and fight with every fiber of your being the casual way in which sexual conquest is deemed acceptable in our world. I think that the, you know, we spoke on this at length, the talk on the sexual revolution some months back, but I believe with all my heart that the greatest losers since the sexual revelation have been women, especially young women, and men have had everything they want. Sex without strings. No responsibility. And you think about that as a cultural phenomenon, and I think you'd be hard-pressed to think of anything that is more anti-Christ-like. Christ who had in his heart a bride from eternity who then gave himself up for her in humble service and death upon the cross. That is the image of the Savior that we follow. And therefore, men who take and use and abuse and discard are in many ways the anti-Christ. And it's not that God can't move in on you and transform your heart and redeem you and save you and, and wash you with his grace. He absolutely can. But brothers, we have to resist that as even a possibility that it's ever appropriate to act like that. I think we have to also resist the cultural tendency to, towards irresponsibility and selfishness as men, not wanting to settle down, not wanting to embrace the responsibilities of marriage and of family life. Now, this is becoming just so commonplace that it's just normal, isn't it? There's a question, why should I? But as Christian men, I think it ought to be, it's part of your discipleship from the youngest age, that my calling is to embrace that responsibility as soon as I'm ready. The only valid reason to remain single by choice is that you might devote your life more fully to the work of Christ. Resist that notion that it's good and right to live a self-consumed, irresponsible life in this area. Another thing you have to resist is the fear of commitment then. If you've decided in your heart, I know that God, that it's right for me to marry. That fear of commitment, that unwillingness to, to enter into a relationship and say yes to a woman permanently it is a contagion. It is a disease. I don't think there's a man here who hasn't at some stage wrestled with that in some way. I don't know. I, I mean, we could spend the whole morning just exploring the reasons and the causes for that fear, which seems to, be, to, be, to me to be a relatively new phenomenon in society. But it's something that has to be resisted. There's courage. There's faith involved in, in setting your heart on someone and choosing to marry them even if you feel afraid. And you have to resist also then in choosing and settling down. Those temptations that will erode love from the foundations, the temptations towards sexual, sexually illicit behavior that is the, the opposite of and at war with 
the Christ-like love that Paul's talking about here. And if you can resist those things, then you can run towards and embrace what I believe is the, the, the Christian man's calling, which is, first of all, that you, most of you are called to marry. So you have to get yourself ready for that, brothers. Start washing. You know. <laughs> Actually, I think, given our context, it's probably... Men are overly accustomed to preening these days, aren't they? And, and presenting themselves as, a, as, a, as being perfectly, perfectly in shape and all those other things. But being prepared for marriage is about theological, spiritual character development to the point where you can carry the responsibility of leading a home. Prepare yourself for marriage. Marry young if you can. I think there are risks with marrying young. But by and large, the benefits outweigh the risks. It is good to enter into the iron-sharpening, iron relationship of a marriage early on in a way that your life is being formed and shaped by a person who I trust will be a woman of God. Which brings me to another thing here. Choose someone who is godly above all. I'm not saying that you have to forego attraction and sexual desire. That is not true at all. That would lead to the most drudgery and the most miserable marriage if you just are not attracted, you just thought you respected their spirituality and just went for it. I'm not commending that. But what I am saying is that your highest criteria must be that she has a heart for God. And then, brothers, be completely devoted to her. There are no limits to the love of Christ in him giving himself for us. And that is the model. And if I say this to brothers, let me just speak briefly to sisters in this room. The passage, of course, I haven't read it to you, but that passage at the, the second half of Ephesians 5 where Paul talks about this dynamic between the husband and the wife. If the husband's role is encapsulated by that one word, love, the wife's role is encapsulated by the word respect. And this is interesting and surprising in some ways. What is his concern here as he begins to speak into these households and talks about marriage, about children, about masters and servants? What, are, what is his chief concern in this passage? And the answer is, his major concern is that the order of God will be reflected in how our family life is lived out. Now, what this means in reality is that as women, there are narratives and agendas in the world that are unhealthy for your, your potential of having a happy marriage. One of them is that you owe it to womanhood to assert yourself as an independent woman and to fight the idea that you should ever submit to or respect a husband. You don't owe it to womanhood to do that. You have an allegiance to Christ above all. Another narrative is that you owe it to yourself to fight against the idea of submission and respect of a husband within marriage because that will somehow inhibit your ability to express who you are to the world and live out your dreams so that some version of you will die and be crushed by entering into a marriage in which that pertains. Now, if you marry a godly man, his desire will be for you to flourish. So it is right to think about that dynamic and how husbands can cause wives to flourish in extraordinary ways just as Christ does for his church. But friends, I want to remind you, again, our allegiance is to Jesus. 
And his, his word on this subject is not gray, it's not confused, it's not ambiguous. It is emphatic, it is clear, it is black and white. And this is what he says twice to the wives here in, this, in, in Ephesians 5. He says in verse 22, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. And then he rounds it off at the end of that passage, verse 33. Let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Now the reason why I felt like I need to just take a couple of steps back and talk about some of these dynamics before we can move on and think about the integration of children into that home is simply because I do not think it's possible to, have a, to restore the family and to have homes that are revived by the presence and the order of God if you don't begin with a foundation of, of godly marriage. Think about this, how can state this positively and negatively, but as soon as you bring children into the equation, the positive way of stating it is like this. That when children are raised within a home in which the dynamics of that marriage, a husband sacrificially loving in absolute devotion to his wife in a Christ-like way, and that wife honoring and respecting him in such a way that there is this beautiful dance in this partnership. When children are brought into such a home, it's much easier for them to understand how they are to offer their lives to Christ. Well, let me phrase that negatively. If a kid is raised in a home where the dad doesn't love his wife like Jesus loves the church, the primary image that God has given him of what Christ's likeness ought to look like is marred. And you're a man who, in a moment of <laughs> unbelievable stupidity and wickedness, committed adultery. And he had four children. And to this day, none of those children are walking with God, even though he and his wife were reconciled and there was repentance and there was change in him. Now, I... I don't have the wisdom to know whether those two things are one in one connected, whether it might have been different. But I think many of us could look at stories like that, where you see inadequacy in the father to be the husband he's called to be, to love his wife in the way he's called to love her. Now, God's grace can overrule. There are many failed dads and husbands who, by the grace of God, have had children who far exceed them in spiritual maturity and godliness and Christ-likeness. That's the gospel, friends. God can do that. Do it in us all, Lord. Do it in our families. Lord knows we're inadequate as men. The children have to see. My dad is like Jesus. And they also have to see mom and see how she respects and honors the dad if they're to then obey their parents. If the mom is constantly criticizing or undermining the father or resisting and arguing with him in ways that are unhelpful, how will the children learn to respect and honor the parents and then to respect and honor Christ? They cannot. They can't expect to raise children well in homes in which the marriage doesn't get this right, friends. This is why we have to start there and say the, the marriage is the foundation. I think that's why Paul started there in the last chapter. 
a godly foundation built upon Christ. Let's move on. There must then, secondly, be a willingness and the desire for children within marriage. If you are to marry, in other words, I believe that you are called to desire and to attempt to have children and raise them for Christ. Now, I say that and instantly I feel the, the, the acute awareness that I know that there are those in our church and there are so many who have been unable to conceive children, even despite wanting to and desiring to. The scriptures are tender in dealing with that situation. And I want to encourage you and say that if you've wanted but been unable to have children, the Lord has plans for you. We know that he works all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. We know that his intention for you is that you'll be fruitful for him. And I love the image images we have of scripture of godly marriages and the way that they can impact the world and, and, and the cause of Christ in the world. Think of Priscilla and Aquila. We have no idea whether they had children. It becomes irrelevant because of their, their mighty impact in the household of faith in the church. God is not finished with you. God wants to use you. But let me just return to this statement that there must be a willingness and a desire for, for children. I know that because I've had these conversations that many people resist this and object to it. And you may be thinking, look, that's not in the text. Nowhere in Ephesians does Paul say, parents, married couples, you must have children. You must try to have children. And in fact, you might push back further and say, nowhere in the New Testament is that said either. To which I say, you're absolutely right. I agree with you. So let's just concede that point for a second. But we're not done. You know me. For Paul, writing as he was then, the notion that a couple would choose not to have children was such a foreign idea because it was impossible. I think sometimes we vastly underestimate the impact that the pill has had upon society. The notion of a, a marriage that is childless by choice historically was a complete nonsense. It was merely assumed, of course, that if you marry and if there's a healthy sexual relationship within the marriage and fertility, then, of course, children will come with time. And so, do the scriptures speak directly into this idea? No, they don't, because they assume that you love each other, that you have a, sec a healthy sexual relationship, and therefore, of course, that you will conceive. Now, the question of contraception is a question for another day. I don't want to get into that here and now. But I want you to see that biblically, I don't really think there's much give on this, this issue. Why did God create marriage to begin with? I think you can list a few fundamental pillars of why God made marriage in Genesis 1 and 2. And right at the top, the first thing you read about is that you would multiply and fill the earth. God 
created marriage for the multiplication of humankind. And to go against the intent and design and pattern of God's created order is always troublesome. And maybe if we take it a more of a heart level approach on this question, really what you have to get into, because as with all of God's ways and commands, is really the question of why and why not. What is it within you, friend, that would resist this? Why is your heart reluctant? Is it fear? Is it fear of missing out? What is it that's going on? I believe that in order to, to get to the bottom of this, you have to do that internal work and understand what's going on in your heart. I don't think the scriptures are, are, are confusing on this issue. I think it's absolutely emphatic and clear. There must be a desire to have children. Is it ever right not to have kids? In vanishingly rare circumstances. Maybe if you're called to, to, to frontline missions for Christ in some part of the world where your life will be in danger and it would be foolish and irresponsible to bring children, maybe then I could conceive. I have never met anyone in those circumstances, so I just wanted to make that clear, but maybe then. Maybe if there was some genetic reason why it would be wrong to bring children into the world because of transmission of uh, some, some awful uh, condition. Maybe then. But friends, these are, these are the exceptions that prove the rule. I want to stress this. I want you to understand this. And listen, the time to wrestle with this is not when you're married. It's, it's before. I'd encourage you to make this a topic of conversation when you're courting somebody. I had another friend, uh, not believers, who divorced because after they married, there was this, 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 uh, this, this, this argument they couldn't settle over whether they would or wouldn't have children. Friend, the time to have that conversation is long before you walk down the aisle. This brings me to the last point. If marriage is the foundation that brings this restoration to family, and if there must then be a willingness to, and desire for children. The third thing, and this is where we get to the text at last, Children must be taught to obey parents as their service to Christ. I think our modern world has a problem with the notion of, of discipline and of obedience. And it's worth just exploring that momentarily. Why is it that we've seen such a laissez-faire approach to parenting becoming fashionable in, in Western society generally? It wasn't always true historically and it's not true globally. Why has that happened? And I think that there's a couple of answers you can give. One is because there was a, a, an increasing growth in the idea of the innate goodness of humans. That the Christian doctrine of total depravity, that we are sinners, uh, that we're born in sin, was, was, was a, a horrific idea that belonged to a, a, a bygone age, and that rather we ought to consider ourselves and consider one another as being fundamentally good. And it seems to me that that's the kind of idea that's been perpetuated through philosophy and through psychology. That your child, when, when your child is born, that child is, is an angel waiting to unfurl its wings. And become the cherub that it was, is destined to be. 
And you think these ideas can only be communicated by people who have never had children. <laughs> the, idea, the belief in the innate goodness of, of children, of childhood, that all that you have to do is step back and gently watch and guide, and you see that goodness take full fruition. That's one idea. Another is the Western idolatry of the self, the individual, that my greatest person, purpose in life is to express who I am to the world, and the world must receive me in all of my glory. That is the greatest God of the Western world right now, I believe, the self, the individual. And as Christians, we resist both of these ideas. We resist the notion that you are born good because the scriptures say, Paul, as David says in Psalm 51, in sin did my mother conceive me. Amen. And as Paul says in Romans 3, echoing the Psalms, there is no one who is good, no, not one. Sin is a disease that has affected the entirety of humanity, and we are only liberated by the work of Christ achieved for us on the cross through the gospel. And you need a sober view when you look at your children. There are moments when you think you could do no wrong. You know, when my, my fourth kid... I often would say to C when she, when she was about seven, six, seven months old and cuddle her, I'd say, this one's perfect, isn't she? <laughs> you know, after successive failures, I was like, this one is perfect. She's expressing herself, let me tell you that now, now that she's a little bit older. And my wife loves to remind me of my broken theology on that issue. <laughs> we believe in the doctrine of total depravity. It doesn't mean that people are as bad as they could be, but it means that sin has affected every part of you. Your mind, your imagination, your will, your desires, everything is tainted by sin. And we also believe that the, the idea that the highest purpose in life is the expression of me and all my glory to present to the world, that that's nonsense, it's rubbish. And the highest purpose of life is to surrender yourself to Jesus and love him with all of your heart. That's the purpose of life. And friends, this is why we should unashamedly have minds and hearts that are recalibrated when it comes to this whole issue of raising children, which most of you will do if you're not doing it now. Part of this recalibration is getting rid of the defeatism that has affected the church, in which we basically expect our children to walk away from God. I think that is a lie that undercuts and undermines your ability to parent your children well. I remember about 10 years ago, I read a book on parenting by the leading voice at the time in the UK on family matters in, in, within the Christian world. He'd written a book on parenting teenagers. When I read this book, it was basically just comfort to parents for when your children walk away from God. And I was angry. I was frustrated. Is this the best we can offer? Comfort for when your children walk away from God? No. The Bible tells us that God is faithful. It tells us, as I read to you in Acts, Acts 2, that this promise is for you and for your children. Now, that's not that we are ever presumptuous that our children will walk in the same belief and faith that we have. And when we, we see children walk away from Jesus, it breaks our hearts. 
But I believe that Christian parents start from the strong assumption that Christ is mightier than the world. And that if my life is fully devoted to him, my children are going to see the beauty of the gospel in time. And I don't need to despair or fear for their future. I will pray for them, and I will teach them, and I'll raise them in the context of a church in which they're exposed to the passionate faith of others. But I basically am very confident. And then, with that confidence in our hearts, friends, then we pursue the highest standards in obedience and godliness in our homes. The highest standards. Now, there are wrong reasons to do this. We don't pursue obedient children because disobedient kids are embarrassing. And believe me, they are. I have lost count a number of times when I'm basically telling off my child because I am very embarrassed at their behavior. You know, you take them out for dinner and they're under the table or on the table or throwing food across the table and you think, why did I have children? It takes an active work of the, the mind and to, to remember why you had children in the first place. But we do not discipline children because of the potential of embarrassment. Though that is there. We don't discipline our children because we want to control them. You can't fight sin with sin. When your child is expressing sinful rebellion, I can't battle that by expressing my own sin to want to control them. And you don't discipline children or raise them to be obedient because they can be annoying when they're disobedient. And they can. They really can. You know, we, we, I, as I told you, we drove down the full length of France down to the, we drove from home down to the, the, the south to the French Alps and back again. And I kid you not, when we, when we drove out from our estate on Black Prince Road and turned left and went up to the junction at the end of the road, my three-year-old chirped up, are we in France yet? <laughs> we only had, I don't know, six, seven, eight hundred miles left to go. And of course, with every plea, which then became a stern command to stop asking the question, disobedience was sure to follow. And it is irritating when your kids disobey you. But the irritation is not why we raise them to be obedient. We raise them to be obedient because this is our way of training them to surrender their life to the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings, to Jesus Christ. This is how we love them. And I want to just draw your attention to what Paul says here. He says, children, obey your parents in the Lord. He's appealing directly to them, and the reason why he wants them to be obedient is because this is how they learn to, to surrender their life to Jesus. It's true for all of us. Submission to the authorities around us trains us to be submitted to the ultimate authority because he put them over us. And it's discipleship in the home that starts from when they're young. The best time to train children to be obedient is really before they're three years old. Most of the work that we put in with our children has been that work between when they start expressing rebellion, which is about six months, to roughly three. Longer in the case of one of those children, but roughly that age, okay? So, and why? Because we want to train them that their heart and their will can be surrendered to, to good authority. So that the next step is, well, Christ is, of course, Lord. And this is what Paul's saying. Obey your parents in the Lord. The in the Lord goes with obey. Obey in the Lord. And our children need to be, to, to be raised to recognize that this is how they please Jesus with their 
with their childhood. And then the other part of this is, he then goes on and says, this is the, 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 the first commandment with a promise, the honor your father and mother. It's the fifth commandment of the Ten Commandments. And the promise is that it may, live long, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. And Paul's point is this, that in a world of instant gratification, it's even worse now, right, where, where we're constantly told to indulge our impulses and pursue pleasure and live for the present, the Christian life is the life of delayed gratification in which we live by faith. We put to death the flesh. We believe in the promises of God. And by so doing, we are able to surrender our life to the will of God, knowing that there is a reward for those who live for him. And children need to learn that from the youngest age. Christ's will is better for you than what all your friends are offering, what the world is offering. Let me make some closing comments. Let me speak first of all to those of you who will one day be parents, which is, I think, most of you. Friends, there is no more solemn responsibility and calling than this. You may agonize and wrestle and think long and hard about what it is that you're doing with your life, and that's not wrong. And you think primarily in terms of vocation and calling and service and all these other things. All those things are good. But having children, in my view, eclipses almost everything in responsibility and weightiness. I feel this as a pastor. You know, there are lots of desires and longings that get invested into the work when you plant and lead a church. But I can honestly say to you that if I had to choose whether I succeed in pastoring or succeed in being a father, I would choose being a father in a heartbeat. I feel the weightiness of it. To have these lives that are dependent upon me for a season, to know and learn who Christ is. To be raised to love him. Trained well. I can't think of anything more exciting or scary than that. And now is the time for you to start thinking and praying and forming your heart and mind and imagination about that long before they arrive. And you'll feel your limitations. I feel them all the time. We're not going to do this perfectly. Nothing will drive you to more dependence upon Christ than being a parent. And so it will become the vehicle of deep sanctification and transformation in your life. You'll need him. You'll need the gospel in ways like you never imagined. And let me say a final word to those of you who will never raise children or for whom that is a season that is gone. And whether you regard that as successful or a failure, you know, that's between you and the Lord. But let me just speak to those of you who will not, this is not relevant in terms of being parents or becoming parents. I want you to just step back and just observe one thing. This is Paul, a single man, as far as we know, a childless man, speaking directly to the children when he speaks here. He speaks to them. He says, children, obey your parents in the Lord. And I want you to think about what it the heart of a man who would do that. This is a man 
who felt the corporate responsibility for the children in the churches. These are our cherished next generation. And let me challenge you, brother and sister. Even if you are never a parent to biological children, I want to encourage you to foster the heart, like the Apostle Paul expresses here, that our calling together is to raise children who are passionate for Christ. And as Paul felt that liberty as a kind of uncle in the Lord to speak to the children in the congregation, our children in this church are far more blessed and more likely to have flourishing relationships with Jesus Christ when all of you understand that you can play a part in that. When you befriend when you encourage, when you stir up, when you have spiritual conversations with the kids as they're growing older, when you get involved in their teaching and instruction here formally or informally. Now, I'll never forget the story of one of my brothers in, in the advanced movement of church as a pastor who says that his testimony was that he came from a very damaged upbringing and a broken home. And when he was in his mid-teens, a pastor in one of the local churches befriended him and would take him to church gatherings and just speak into his life. And he came to faith, and he is now a pastor whose work and labor in Christ has been wonderful, magnificent. My own dad was raised in an unbelieving home. Found the Lord at age 14. Found his way to church without family, biological family around him. And was helped and nurtured and embraced by some of the older guys in the church who put books in his hands and invited him to Bible studies and things like this. And he became a mighty preacher and pastor himself. And I want you to see, friends, this is your calling. This is our calling. We're raising the next generation. May God give us the ability and the grace to raise children who exceed us and go beyond us in their passion and devotion to Jesus. Amen.